Hi, my name is Kathy Harrelson. I'm a part of our Women in the Word teaching team, and I'm honored that I get to be here today to talk about 2 Samuel 16 and 17. As I was preparing this lesson, I called Vanita, who's one of our Women in the Word teachers as well, because part of what we talk about in chapter 16 is actually going to be covered also in chapter 19 that she is teaching in a couple of weeks, and I wanted to make sure I wasn't going to step on her toes or make a major point she was planning to make. And I was curious what she had studied and learned because I wanted to make sure that I had seen everything in the text I needed to see and that what I said was going to flow well with what she said. And so we began talking with each other about our themes and our lessons. And Benita told me what she was going to title her lesson, which I thought was a really good title. And since I go first, I jokingly told her, I'm going to steal your title, which I was not going to do. And then she said, if you steal my title, I'm rushing up on stage and stealing the mic from you. And we laughed about that. This is not going to happen. But because this is a hard lesson, this is the only thing I could think of to maybe make y'all laugh. You know how they have those reality shows where they're like, and there's a fight that's coming, so tune in next week. And I was like, can you just imagine if that was our marketing strategy for women in the world, <laughs> that our teachers just fight with each other and that's why you invite your friends? We are not going to do that, but it was my only way to get you to laugh in this lesson. Anyway, as I was talking to Vanita, I also was sharing with her what I had seen in these chapters. Chapter 16 and 17, I told her, they're just hard. They are messy from beginning to end. And David is tired in every way. Physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, it's just a mess. And Vanita stopped and she said something. And after she said it, I said, can I anonymously quote you on that? And she said, well, you don't even have to be anonymous. You can say I said it. And I said, okay, here's what she said. She said, Kathy, when I'm tired, especially mentally tired, just with life stuff, she said, that is when I make the dumbest decisions. I make the biggest mistakes when I am in something hard and messy and I am just mentally tired. She said, I have no discipline. And she said, it is the biggest problem in my life. She also talked about, which I really respect, some things and perimeters she's put up that are godly things that really help her in that. But that phrase that when you're tired and weary, what you do is the biggest problem in her life made me think how many of us could say that or could say something similar. It may not be the biggest problem, but what do we do when we're weary and when we're tired? If you have anything or have ever had anything messy or hard in your life, anything that was tiring, this is the lesson for you. Because we are going to see, hopefully, how to not make dumb mistakes and how to have some comfort in the middle of our hard when we're really tired. I want to say one more thing that I hope is encouraging to you. As we've been studying through 2 Samuel, we've seen David do some really great, wonderful, godly things. And we'd also seen him make some mistakes and sin in some pretty significant ways. And David knows that part of what he is experiencing as hard in these chapters and wearying is a part of the results of his own sin and choices. That is not good, but I say that as an encouragement to us. Because most of us understand that many times our hard and our messy is impacted, at least partially, by our own choices and by our own sin. So what we are going to hear and learn today is not just for perfect people who have never sinned and find themselves in a hard place. It is for people like me and you that aren't perfect and that mess up and that need a place to go when they are tired and weary. 
At the end of chapter 15, if you remember, David is in a hard place. His son Absalom has come into Jerusalem, and he is trying to steal the kingdom from David. So David, because Absalom has stolen the hearts of the people in Israel, has to flee quickly. He takes some of his household and army and some of the people with him, and they are on the run. And we are going to see what it is like for David on the run. Start with me in verse 1, and let's see what happens. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba the servant of Mephibosheth met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, and 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. David and his people have quickly fled Jerusalem, and they need basic supplies just to survive. We're going to find that throughout all of chapter 16 and 17, things are physically hard for David and his people. There is hunger. There is thirst. They are physically exhausted. They are physically weary. I know for many of us, we think our day is off if we just don't have our morning coffee or don't sleep particularly well or perhaps get a little bit hangry, hungry and angry if the food is a little late. And I want us to remember as we study this whole passage that from beginning to end, things are physically challenging for David and his people as they are on the run. Let's pick up again in verse 3. And the king said, where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. As a reminder, Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son, David's good friend, and he's King Saul, the previous king's grandson. Mephibosheth is crippled, and we see in 2 Samuel 9, David is incredibly kind to Mephibosheth. He gives Mephibosheth all that had belonged to Saul. He leaves Ziba to till the land for Mephibosheth, and he even invites Mephibosheth to come eat at his table with him. Ziba says, hey, Mephibosheth isn't here with me because, you know, Saul was king previously and Mephibosheth is related to him. And so Mephibosheth hopes that in the middle of this coup and government upheaval that he will actually get to be king. So Ziba brings with him simple provision, but he also brings with him news of duplicity by a friend. Can you imagine in the midst of this physically hard, the grief that it must have brought to David, the distress of knowing that someone that you had been so kind to was now stabbing you in the back. That would have been emotionally wearying. However, as we see in chapter 19, which Vanita is going to cover in a few weeks, um, that's not all to the story. When David talks to Mephibosheth later, Mephibosheth says, that's not what happened. I was very concerned about you. I wanted to be with you, but I didn't have a way to get there and to be with you. Vanita and I both think it's far more likely that Ziba is lying than that Mephibosheth is. So even though David is dealing with this emotional distress of news about Mephibosheth, 
What he doesn't know is that there's actually deception and lies underneath this whole story. Things are messy and hard and difficult on the run. Continue to think about how wearying this must be as David continues on with a group of people that he knows he's responsible for, and they've left quickly, and they're in the wilderness. We see that eventually David comes to Bahiram, and there's a man named Shimei of the house of Saul, and he also engages with David. Let's read in verse 6 and see what Shimei does as he curses David. He throws stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Shimei comes blaming David for bloodshed against Saul. And though David is not perfect, to be honest, one of the things I have most respected in David's life is how he treated King Saul, even though for years Saul was terrible to him and tried to kill him. And yet David honored Saul, and he has honored the people and descendants of Saul. It's one of the things I most respect about him, and yet here he is being accused. We're going to find out in chapter 19 that Shimei actually comes and apologizes for what he's done. But here in this moment, we see him falsely accusing David, attacking David, and cursing him. Things continue to be hard and wearying. David's ally says, let's fight back. That isn't right. And look what David says in verses 10 and following. He says, if Shimei is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son sinks my life. How much more may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for this cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. Yet again, David, Saul's descendants, is kind. He is patient. He has self-control and he trusts that whatever God is doing, it's okay. He says, if God's cursing me, God's cursing me. And if he's not, maybe I will be blessed. And yet this is hard we see in verse 14 what we've been talking about. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. The Jordan was likely about 25 miles from Jerusalem, sorry, 21 miles from Jerusalem. They arrive weary and tired. Physical hardship and emotional anguish weary David and his people. So what did he do in this moment? We have moments similar to this as well, don't we? What do we do? One of my favorite things about this lesson is so often as I've been studying 2 Samuel, and I've talked to many of you who say the same thing, we love hearing the story, but we wish we knew more. Like, what about this? What was David thinking? What was going on there? Well, this is one of those rare instances that we actually get more, because Psalms 3 and 63 were likely written about this very, very time when David is fleeing from Absalom. 
So at moments, we are going to get glimpses of what David was thinking and feeling, how he was responding to what he is going through. Read with me in Psalm 3, verses 1 and 2, and we're going to see how David responds. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. David talks about his foes to God. He talks about the pain and the difficulty that he is going through. Read Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He expresses to God the pain and the difficulty that he's going through. When we are in seasons where we're weary or something is hard, do we talk to God about the pain and the difficulty of what we are experiencing? He actually knows already and he cares. Or do we do what I do sometimes, try to hide it, maybe understate it, try to fix it myself? I just deny it. It's not that bad. I avoid going to God about it because I don't want to be a bother. Maybe I just talk to a friend about it. I feel bad talking to God about it because, frankly, my sin is part of the problem. I just don't want to talk about negative things. Do we avoid at times talking to God about the hard things that are going on in our life? First of all, he actually already knows. We're not giving him any new information. And he genuinely cares. Can we say, God, this is hard. This is going on. I'm having a hard time. God, I sinned. I'm embarrassed with how I'm responding. There have been times I've gone before the Lord and said, God, I don't even have words to describe. I don't even know what's going on. That is actually a healthy way for us to respond when we're weary, to avoid some mistakes and to experience some comfort, is to go to the God who already knows and cares and talk to him about what we are experiencing. We're going to come back to Psalm 3 and 63 and continue to see how David responds during this season. But we've got a glimpse of life on the run, and it is difficult. So what's going on back in Jerusalem? Well, God's anointed King David was run out of Jerusalem, but he is supported there by an ally, Hushai. If you remember, at the end of 2 Samuel 15, David, fleeing, knows that this coup is going on, and as a wise king wanting to protect himself, his kingdom, the people of his kingdom, sets up a plan to try to respond to the attacks that he's going on to go through, and he sends in a spy, his ally, Hushai, and they set up this plan that Hushai will hear what's going on and then come tell David. So Hushai enters in and begins to dialogue with Absalom. Let's see how it goes in verse 15. Now Absalom and all the people and men of Israel came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. Don't we wonder if Hushai is thinking, long live the king, and secretly saying in his head, King David, King David, as he is sitting there talking to Absalom. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? Absalom finds it odd that Hushai has left his friend David to come to Absalom. And Hushai says to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be and with him I will remain. 
And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel, what shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pinched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. While it may have been normal in the ancient Near East for a king of a new dynasty to come and take over the harem of a previous king, this is definitely not God's way. We have been hearing throughout 2 Samuel God's call for a type of sexual appropriateness that we have not seen many times, should not have many wives, should not have concubines. This is not what God has designed, particularly also to have someone else's. So while Ahithophel seems to have been a counselor esteemed in the past, perhaps he gave good advice in the past, but right now he is not. He is definitely not. David's former counsel, Ahithophel, is denouncing David. He's ignoring what God's word says and what God wants. He's giving really ungodly advice to Absalom, and he is dishonoring God. It at least gives me a moment of caution that even if our counsel is esteemed in certain places, or if we've given counsel in the past, I don't regularly give counsel to kings, but we all have friends and family that ask our opinion at times. Even if we're esteemed and have given good counsel in the past, we must be careful that we are constantly telling the people around us advice and giving counsel that's consistent with God's word and consistent with God's character. So what did Absalom do? Did he take this advice or did he not? He didn't have to take it. He could have gone to God and gone to God's word. I sadly am not surprised that Absalom didn't. I'm not sure he cared, but he could have. Unfortunately, he takes this counsel. He openly follows this poor counsel. He sins against God. He shuns God's chosen king, who's also his own father. And he attempts to steal a role that isn't his. He is not to be king, and he's trying to take it. We can imagine that nothing good is going to come from this. Like Absalom didn't do, we should be careful with who we hear and what we listen to. Even if it's someone in the past that has given good counsel, we always need to be making sure that we are taking to God and to his word before we act on an opinion that someone gives us. So how are things looking in Jerusalem? Well, they are broken. There is spiritual depravity. There is great governmental disarray. We're in the middle of a coup. There's family betrayal with a son trying to steal the kingship of his father. And this infiltrates the heights of Absalom's power. This was all known and done publicly. We have to assume David would know this. And what weariness and grief this must have brought. First of all, knowing his own sexual sin and response, such that Nathan had told David in 2 Samuel 12 that things like this were going to happen. David has to have seen his sin and how that has impacted things. 
He has to be grieved about what is going on for the people he loves that are still in Jerusalem as well as the people who are with him. He has to be grieved by his son. His career is being stolen. His calling for God attacked. And yet he still has this responsibility of the people who are with him. When we are weary, we must be careful where we place our trust. We've got to know and trust God first and foremost. I want to pick up for a minute back in Psalm 3 and 63 where we were. I told you that we can and should bring our concerns to the Lord and talk to him about what's going on, even the hardship. But that's not the only piece of the puzzle. I actually have an opportunity to be a part of the team that works on our Christ Chapel Women's podcast called Encouraged and Equipped. And we have different once of you come on the podcast and talk about what God's doing in your life and what you've learned just so we can encourage and equip each other. It's on Apple, Spotify, and Christ Apple's YouTube. And we're releasing four Easter episodes, two before Easter on brokenness and lament, and two after Easter on celebration and living in Christ. And since I'm a part of the team, I've gotten to listen to them. And the one on lament I thought was really powerful and really resonates with this lesson because Bethany and Carrie talk a lot about this. They talk a lot about bringing your pain and difficulty to the Lord and how that is an act of trust to bring that to the Lord. But also, as we bring to God the hard and the difficult and what we are experiencing, we also remind ourselves of and bring the truth of God's character into it as well. And we don't just bring the hard. We bring and talk about and wrestle with and remind ourselves of God's character. And that is what David does here. I want to read some more from Psalm 3 and 63, and I want you to note the things he says about God's character, and I want you to see the verbs and the actions that he takes as he tries to remind himself of and walk through this difficulty well. Psalm 3, in verses 3 through 5, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. And read Psalm 63, verses 2 through 8. Look at how he talks about God. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing to joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Look at this. Look at the action steps that David takes. He cries aloud to the Lord. He blesses God. He lifts up his hands. His mouth praises God. He remembers God on his bed. He meditates on God in the night watches. His soul clings to God. When we are weary, we bring not just the pain, but we wrestle through and we remind ourselves of who God is. Let's check back in on things in Jerusalem and see what happens at the start of chapter 17. We see two counselors collide, this plan that has been set in place by David and Hushai to infiltrate Absalom and to hear what Ahithophel says, and also Hushai is going to be able to respond. 
Look at what Ahithophel recommends to Absalom in verse 1. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. To be honest, this is a great plan. Absalom has a very shrewd counselor here in Ahithophel, and Ahithophel presents an effective strategy to defeat a weary David. He said, let's go with a large force. Let's go now while they're tired and they are weary. Let's get this psychological advantage of fear and panic, and let's just get David. Let's just get one person, just one person. It's actually a really great plan. And then it's Hushay's turn. What does Hushay recommend? He does a phenomenal job of creating doubt in this plan and even pulling on some information that Absalom knows to try to push Absalom a different way to give David and the people more time to escape. Look at verse 7. Hushai says to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given, it's not good. It's going to create some doubt. Hushai said, you know. He pulls on information that Absalom knows about his father. You know that your father and his men are mighty men and that they're enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He's not going to spend the night with the people. Behold, even now, he's hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the purse of tack, whoever hears it will say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who with him are valiant men. He creates this doubt, and then he says, But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered together from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go into battle in person. And he continues on describing all the people coming together and having a great military victory, not just over one person. Hushai contradicts Ahithophel's recommendation and he outlines a strategic plan which will, unknown to Absalom, provide time for David and his people to escape. So what happens? What's the decision? Well, we as the reader are going to be read into something that Hushai may not have known then, but God is actually the one who's going to make this decision. Look at verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel, for the Lord... The Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. God ordains that Absalom and the people pursue Hushai's plan, which is going to protect David, and it's going to foil Absalom. Again, we get a glimpse into this that Hushai and David may not have known at the time about what God was ordaining, and they certainly didn't know exactly what is going to happen. And so because of this, we're going to read in just a minute, Hushai continues on with the plan to try to get to David the information about what is going on and to tell David to leave quickly. We're not sure exactly why he does that, because Absalom does pick his plan. Maybe he thinks Absalom's going to change his mind. Maybe he's just thinking 
David and the people are going to need a head start because some significant things are coming. Maybe there was a gap between when they presented this information and when the decision was made. And so Hushai tells David what has been said. Regardless, Hushai and David don't know the final outcome, not just of what's going to happen with this decision, but what is coming in the future. So Hushai does this in verse 15. He says to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. He tells them what each side said, and then this is what he says to go tell David. Do not stay at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means passed over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Hushai and David don't know exactly what is going to happen. When we are weary, like David is, in the midst of unknowns, we can rest in God because God controls the outcome. I want to recount just for a minute some of the things that David has done. At the end of chapter 15, he prayed that God would turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. In places in the Psalms, like Psalm 3, verse 7, he says, Arise, O Lord, save me. He is asking God to intervene. He is doing what he can but he doesn't know the outcome. And as I thought about this moment, or at least this outcome on earth, I thought, you know, I really resonate with that. I feel like with a good bit of my life, I, I live a good bit of time there, even when I've done it well. I've asked God to work. I'm doing what I can. But I don't know what the earthly outcome is going to be. And I can feel that feeling along with them. And I was reminded of a time, and this really has been a marker for me that I've remembered many times in, in other situations in my life, even very simple situations. But it was a moment right after I'd been diagnosed with cancer, and I was going to the Lord in prayer and saying, Lord, I ask for healing, ask for a good doctor, ask for the treatment to not be bad. And I remember standing up from that and thinking, I don't know what the earthly outcome is going to be. I prayed I was going to go do the treatment like I was supposed to, but I didn't know. I know now what I didn't know then. I did live. I had a great doctor. I had not one primary cancer, but two, and the treatment was really terrible. None of that did I know at the time. And I remember thinking, God, I kind of only know two things. I know, number one, you are present with me, and you are in control of everything that goes on. You're not going to leave me. You're standing with me, and you're doing something good with and for me here, even though I don't know what's going to happen on earth. I know that. Then I know the final outcome is heaven. If I die, or when I die at some point, because of Jesus' death and resurrection and faith in him, my final outcome is settled. But in the middle, I don't know exactly the details of how all this is going to flesh out, but I know who you are, and I know that you are with me. And I'm not going to tell you that then or now that that makes it easy. It doesn't. But I can tell you there is a place to go for a sense of rest and stability, and it is in the character of God who is in control and is present with you. And I want to read back through these characteristics that David has mentioned in Psalm 3 and 63, and I want you to lean into them. I want you to take a breath as you read them. I'm not saying it's going to make everything magically perfect. But there is rest to be found, and I think David gets a glimpse of it, even in the midst of a lot of unknowns. Read this. For those in Christ, God is a shield about us. 
He's my glory. He's the lifter of our heads. He's the sustainer. He is powerful. His steadfast love is better than life. He satisfies. He helps. And we get to be in the shadow of those wings. I won't tell you that it's not hard, but I will tell you that there is rest there. And there is nowhere else you can go and no one else you can go to that is in control of the now and in the future and has this character. When we are weary, like David, we get to rest and lean in this God who is with us and in control of all the outcomes, even when we don't know exactly what they're going to look like on this earth. Let's head back and see how this place, how this plan that they have set in place fleshes out. Pull out your map, which is on your table, or you can see it on the screen. And I want you to see some of these places and track through with some of these people what is actually happening. In the southwest corner of your map, we saw how there is Hebron and how Absalom has come to the north to Jerusalem and how he has pushed David out and David has fled along with the people. And so here in Jerusalem, imagine that Absalom and Ahithophel are there, but also are Hushai and Zadok and Abiathar, these priests. And so Hushai in Jerusalem goes to Zadok and Abiathar who are in Jerusalem and tells them what Ahithophel has said and what Hushai has said. The plan was that a female servant was to go give this message to Jonathan and Ahimehaz and that they were going to be away. They were in Enrogel, which is just to the east, and that was so that no one would see them and maybe suspect what is going on. Someone sees them, however, and goes back and tells Absalom. So from Enrogel, Jonathan and Ahimehaz have to go north to run away because they are being chased by Absalom's servants. So they arrive at Baharim, and they get there, and they see the house of a man who had a well in his courtyard, and so they go down into it. A woman comes out, and she spreads a covering over that well, scatters grain on it. So Absalom's servants eventually arrive there, and they're asking about them, and she says, they've gone over the brook of the water. So they start to look around and they can't find them. So they leave Baharim and they go back to Jerusalem, okay? Then here in Baharim, we've got Jonathan and Ahimehaz. They come out and they go find David and they go tell David, hey, here's what was said. Arise and go quickly over the water for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. So Jonathan and David and all the people cross the Jordan And eventually, they moved north to Mahanaim. Mahanaim was probably about 37 miles from where they had crossed over the Jordan, just to give you an idea of what is happening here. Eventually, Absalom and the men of Israel cross over the Jordan, and they encamp in Gilead. So I want you to have a picture of how this went. And we saw a number of really courageous people risk their lives to protect David, and to enable David and his people to escape Absalom's advances. Well, to be honest, we're not done with God's protection and provision. You will notice off to the east and a little bit to the north, three other cities that I want to mention, Rabbah, Lodibar, and Rogalim. We have Shobay from Rabbah, Maker from Lodibar. Maker was actually the person who had helped Mephibosheth before David helped him. Then we've got Barzillia over at Rogalim. 
they are aware of the need of what is going on, so they send supplies. They send beds, basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, honey and curds, and sheep and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. They know that they are weary and tired, so these neighboring leaders come to the aid of David and his people with some much-needed provision and supplies for these weary refugees. To be honest, as we've walked through this chapter, I have to tell you that, especially from the very beginning, I've thought some moments, I'm not sure what anyone's motive is or why they're doing what they're doing. It's very confusing. I'm thinking that a number of these people were genuinely really loyal to David. It's possible that some of the neighboring leaders just wanted David to be king instead of Absalom, or they were trying to help themselves out. It's definitely possible. I'm not sure. But regardless of what happens, God was providing for and protecting David and his people. God was at work using others. One of the things that we get to do is to look around us and to see and note and pay attention to people around us who are weary or hurting and tired physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, we get to be women who get to take the things that we've been given by Christ and give them to someone else courageously and generously. We don't have to do weariness all by ourselves. Additionally, when we are weary, are we seeking help from people around us, from good people around us? David asked for help at times. And he didn't just ask for it, but he actually accepted it. If you are weary and you're seeking God, but you have a need, are there some people at your Women in the Word table or some other believers that you can reach out to for help? At times when we're asked for help, we need to give it. And to be honest, as I've thought about this, I've thought quite often, at least for me, what it looks like is I'm kind of weary in one area, helping someone else who's weary in another area, and I'm weary in this area, and this person over here is helping me. It's a little bit more of this spiderweb thing that we get to be a part of where we are um, accepting and giving and looking to give help. If you are here and you are weary today, my guess is that most of us have something that we are weary in. Your God knows and cares, and I'm really sorry. Like, I I actually am. If you're to ask one of my good friends, they know that I wish I could go to coffee with every person and hear all of their stories, and that really is a true statement. Like, I really wish I could, and I promise. I'm really sorry. It is hard. What David and the people went through was hard and messy in many ways. But they were not left without a choice, and we are not left without a choice. We can choose to sin and make it worse. We can make dumb mistakes. We can try to just skate by. Or we can make some choices that are healthy, that will help us make better choices, that will bring us the comfort that we can have. We can take to God what is wearying and difficult and actually talk to him about it. We can know and trust him more than anyone else. We can, because he controls the outcomes and he is solid and never leaving us, we can lean back into him and take a breath. We can ask others for help and 
I even think part of what helps us in our weariness is looking outside ourselves to help others. It is hard, but you and I have a choice. There is refreshment to be had. Are we going to take it? Let's pray. Father, you are so incredibly kind to us. You are with us. You take care of us and you provide for us and we are incredibly grateful. I pray, Father, that we would be women who are quick to tell you what's going on, that we are quick to trust you and your word first and foremost, that we are quick to really rest in you, and that we are quick to seek help and to give help for those who are weary. God, give us grace to keep coming to you. It doesn't necessarily happen in an instant, and sometimes it's a long season. Keep us coming. Give us grace to keep coming, and give us the refreshment we know can only be found in you.